So a, a couple in the US of A, I had to throw these American illustrations in there, you see, every now and then, just to keep the, the foreigners amongst us happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, a couple in America moved from New York to the Midwest uh, to, to start a farm, a, a ranch, okay, um, and keep cattle. And they were struggling to decide on a name, and, and, and a friend, some friends came along and said, you know, how's the farm going? What have you decided to call it? So the husband says, we just can't decide. Uh, we, we all have a different point of view. One of, us, uh, one of us wants to call it Bar Jesus. My wife wants to call it Susie Q. My uh, son wants to call it Flying W. And my daughter wants to call it Lazy Y. And we just can't decide what to call it. So the visitor asked, so what did you call it in the end? Because, well, we just did this. We, it's, the farm is called Bar Jesus, Susie Q, Flying W and Lazy Y. We just decided to give the whole lot because we just couldn't agree. And so he looks around the farm and goes, okay, but where's the cattle? He goes, oh, they all died during the branding. I <laughs> know, <laughs> yeah, it's, not, it's not that funny. It's cruel. But look, <laughs> look, Jesus said, if a house is divided, that house cannot stand. The founder of the church. It's what we've been looking at. It's what we said chapter 2 is all about. It's about church unity. It's about church working together as one body. We, our heading has been the example of Christ is the church to key unity. We've looked at what it is, what we should do. We're, thirdly, we've been looking at the perfect example, Christ. We had two points last time. Jesus showed little regard for the benefits of his position as God's equal. And secondly, Jesus humbled himself to the lowest form of human existence. We saw that last week. Today, we've got two further points. We will finish section uh, up to 11 today. So firstly, of two headings, Jesus obeyed God's will at the highest personal cost. Jesus obeyed God's will at the highest personal cost. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. First thing, and we touched on it last week, uh, Jesus' humility ultimately is a cross, but that humility began at the incarnation. Look, I know, you know, you look across, you may look at me and think, what a perfect specimen of humanity. <laughs> I, I get that. It wasn't even funny, Nikki. Okay, I, I get that, you know. But we have to appreciate we're not the pinnacle of God's creation. We were designed to be, but we're fallen creatures. For Jesus to become one of us, even a perfect specimen of a human, and in fact, he wasn't probably. He says there was nothing about him that was attractive. I don't think Jesus stood out in any way. So he became the most humble of creatures and perhaps one of the humblest. He took on the role of a humble, humble carpenter. Yeah, just in case you didn't know, mate, that's a really humble role. Uh, you know, he became a human itself. Uh, it's itself humiliating. Remember, we're dealing with God. Someone who's ontologically God, one in substance and essence. Someone who's functionally God. What, what, what do I mean by that? Someone who's functionally God. What, 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 that, what would that mean? Someone who is functionally God. Which says he's ontologically God, he's one with him in essence. He's functionally God. Who said that? 
yeah, he does function. He, he does everything that God does. Every function that God performs, Jesus functions. He's functionally God. He's all of that, right? And he becomes man. We have to appreciate that's, just, that's not like just one level down, is it? You know, God to man. That's probably just like one. No, it's not one step. It's not ten step. It's a step down of mammoth proportions. For God, his omniscience and his omnipresence and his, his, in, his, in, his in, oh, I can't think of the third one. He'll come to me in a bit. Okay, his omnipotence, okay? Right? To put all that into a man is huge condescension. He did that. I remember once when I was a teenager, so a couple of years ago, when I was a teenager, uh, I, was, I was out in the local town of West Bromwich in the West Midlands in, near Birmingham in the UK, not Alabama, okay, the UK, right? And I was just 16, and I just got converted, you know, and, and, and you know, all about telling people about Jesus. And there was this, this Muslim lady with the, with the full, you know, attire on. And so here's me, you know, you know not a lot has probably changed. And I thought, oh, I'll get her, and I'll go and witness to her. You know, that looks like a good opportunity. So here's me telling this lady all about how Jesus is God's son. And I got to this part and says, he's God, and he's become man. And I absolutely insulted her at that time. And, and she was indignified and said, God would never humiliate himself like that. She got it. She, she grasped the essence of the incarnation. Do you see it? God, but the difference being God did humiliate himself like that. He became one of us. One of us. And look, we're not that special. <laughs> look, I'm sorry, this isn't a church like Ben says, the prosperity is over. You, you get some encouragement, okay, but not a lot, okay? <laughs> he became one of us. Humiliated himself. So we have to appreciate that Jesus has already, by becoming man, has undergone a mammoth humiliation. But this is where he gets beyond anything comprehensible. He goes beyond being a mere human to suffering death. And not just mere death. Look, there are many ways to die, aren't there? And some, some more palatable, it would seem, than others. But we're told here he humiliated himself in the worst possible form of death ever invented it's true that people it perhaps still goes on today invent ways of of, of of eliminating life this was they say the worst invention ever made and we're told that he humbled himself yes as a man but beyond that he humbled himself even further than being a man and became obedient to death and here's a bit even the humiliating and and barbaric, agonizing death of a cross. There is no greater act of love in all of human history. There isn't. There's no act of love that we could ever perform 
like you can come anywhere near that. It's the greatest act of love that the world has ever witnessed. He did it for us. He did the cross for us to rescue us, to pay for our sins, to reconcile us to God, to secure our future in heaven. It was all about us. It is the greatest act, the most incomprehensible act of love the world has ever seen. And it was to win us, to woo us to him. If for nothing else, Christian, walk with him because of the cross. Worship him because of the cross. Because of the cross. Here's what Paul uses. His, his, his purpose here is not soteriology. Here's some, just, some theological terms are worth us knowing. Soteriology is the study of salvation. So normally when we talk about the cross, you're normally referring to soteriology. Paul isn't using it for that purpose. He's not so much interested here in how the cross saves us. It's more ecclesiology. Okay, That's another theological term. means it's to do with the church, how the church functions. Paul is more interested in ecclesiology, the nature and function of the church. He's interested in how the church functions, how it exists, how it survives, what it should look like. And what he's interested in chapter 2 in his ecclesiology is the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. Remember we said it's a divided church, Philippi. And so it's this ecclesiastical element that Paul is drawing out of it. And here's what he's drawing out of the cross. Here's why he gives it to us. Listen to it again. He's pointing to Jesus as the chief example of church unity. And he says, Jesus humbled himself even further, added uh, parenthesis mine, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's what he's drawing out of it. Here's what he wants to see, the aspect of the cross. Let me take you back up. To, to the gospel, John 14. Here's what we're told about Jesus. I want you to understand something about his obedience within the Trinity. I know we, can, we, we, we want to simplify the Trinity and just that, oh God, and that's it. But the Trinity has got dynamics, detail, and, and you ought to be interested in them. I'm going to give you some now anyway. Okay, here's one detail. Within this relationship, uh, there's authority and the subordination. Look at this. Look how Jesus relates to his Father. The world must learn that I love the Father. We can ex- appreciate that, but there's more. And that I do exactly what my Father commands. We never hear that in reverse. The Father never does what... The Son commands. This is a hierarchical structure within the Trinity. Whatever you think of hierarchy and structure and leadership, I know the world thinks it's terrible and disgusting, especially in Australia. It's all about, you know, the equality. Hey, the Trinity exists in hierarchical form. The Son always obeys the Father. He says, look, I do exactly what the Father commands. Jesus exists in a relationship with his Father, which theologically, here's a term, term for you, in, in this form, in functional subo- subordinance. In functional subordinance. And we, we looked at what functionality is, is doing what God does. So Jesus is functionally, he, he does what God does, and in function, he's subordinate to him. He, he, he submits to, obeys, and follows all of the Father's decrees, 
whatever the Father has asked of Jesus of all eternity, Jesus instantly does. So here's the thing. If I were to ask, and I'll try it, and I won't embarrass anybody unless it's you, Lee, okay? Okay, just a warning. Why did Jesus die on the cross? And I want you to think about this before you answer. And and, and I, I, I promise I won't embarrass you, whatever you say. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Thank you. Um, sorry, Stephanie, I forgot your name. Thank you. Yeah. Any, anybody else want to add to that? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. That was a great answer, Stephanie. Okay. And if anybody says that, we'd praise God. But ultimately, ultimately, the a priori rationale, reason, catalyst for the cross is that it was the Father's will. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that He initiated the cross. Can you see that? He gave His Son. And in fact, in John 10, 10, Jesus explains to us how this Trinitarian relationship worked, how the cross came about. Listen to this. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. This command I received from my Father. Why did Jesus die on the cross? It's because He loves me. Yes, it's to save me from my sins. Yes, but they're all secondary reasons. Primarily, Jesus died on the cross because the Father commanded him to do so. And Jesus, for his response, wasn't to, well, I'm going to resist this. I'm not under you. We kind of think that's pretty cool, don't we? No, he says, I did this. As my act of love, he says elsewhere. And he says, and this is really interesting, the reason my father loves me is that I obey everything he commands, he's saying in effect. Can you see what's going on here? Jesus does everything his Father asks of him. In response to that, the Father loves Jesus. Look, without trying to separate these, we have to read them simultaneous events rather than uh, subsequent uh, sequential events, is that God's love for the Son exists and is associated with and turns on the son's obedience to his father. This is a relationship where we, you know, what do our relationships? What are what are our relationships meant to look like? They're meant to look like the Trinity. Do you know it's healthy and good? It's normal to have authority for someone to lead in certain circumstances and for others to follow. That that's that's not inhumane. It's, it's to be human, modelled on God. Jesus models for us what that looks like. But here's, here's what a commentator says. He was so committed to the Father's plan that he obeyed it even as far as death. And Carson adds, the love of the Father for the Son is eternally linked with the unqualified obedience of the Son to the Father. His utter dependence on him culminating in this greatest act of obedience now just before him. That's what Jesus and his Father, that's how they function. That's how the Trinity looks. There's hierarchy, there's functional subordination. And here's what we take away from it. This humiliating death, 
of obedience is the principle of church unity. It's how church unity works. That's what Paul wants us to see in the cross. Not so much soteriology as ecclesiology. He wants us to look at it and how, as how we function. Look, I was, look this is a regular past of mine. Play, play parks. I think it's the next slide, please. Uh, not for my kids, because I love them. Okay? <laughs> not really. I just want to sit down there and say, just play, kids. But any of you know who've got kids or even grandkids, they just can't play by themselves, can they? <laughs> they just don't know how to play by themselves. You have to get up on the swings and the slides and the climbing frame. Look, I was with there at some time back now, I think it was, and I heard these teenagers talking, you know, gathering. They weren't playing. They just wanted to hang around the play park. Uh, and they were obviously having a fight. Uh, and one wasn't talking to the other. You know, and I could hear one saying, no, I'm in the right. You know, no, you need to, or saying to the family, they need to apologise to me. You know, you know, I'm not going to do it. It's not my fault that this has happened. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's never going to be resolved, is it? Unless both sides come together, humble themselves, and work to fix this relationship. Both sides have to acknowledge there's an issue and come together. Here's the point. Here's the point of the cross. Jesus so shows humility, obedience, and commitment to God's purposes. That's what the cross is. And Paul is saying, I want you to look at that. And that's the model for church unity. Humility, a resignation to God's purposes and a readiness to obey Jesus. In Philippi, they weren't doing that. They were loggerheads, they were fighting, you old here, and Syntyche had loggerheads, Paul's having to command them. In Corinth, they were suing each other. And Paul says, no, no, I want you to look at Jesus, and here's what you see. The ultimate example of humility, giving up all our rights, commitment to God's purposes, and obedience to his word. Humility, self-sacrifice, and obedience. That's how we stay united as a church. Look, when, when Jack offends you, the response is not... I have rights in this church as well. How dare they? I will not speak to them. I was telling someone of a story of a church I once pastored. This is a true story. I offended uh, this couple. I didn't know I offended them. I had no idea I offended them by something I said to the husband about their child. Uh, uh, it was just to do with dress sense. Five years later, the lady says to me, when I was leaving the church, five years later, Montez, I'm angry with you. <laughs> she held that against me for five years. Hey, when we are offended, when we are wrong, when someone says the wrong things to us, takes our seat, steps on our toe, you know, beats us to the giving station, <laughs> okay, takes the book that you wanted, 
Jesus demonstrates that our response is to be, in every case, humility, self-sacrifice and obedience. And here's the thing, I've got to say this, I said it last week, I said it the week before. Hey, I see that here. It's why it's such a lovely privilege. One of the reasons I love appreciate uh, being a minister of the gospel here at Living Word Bible Church is because, hey, I see that here. I see that humility, self-sacrifice, and, and a, a desire for God's word. And God bless you, keep that there. Uh, this isn't a kick up the rear because we're not doing it. This is a gentle tap of keep doing it. Keep doing that. Keep remembering that. Don't let the sun go down. You know, if someone does take your seat, uh, you know, let them keep it. If someone does offend you, here's the thing. Don't wait for a sorry. You know, Colossians 3, you know, you know, bear with one another, forgive one another. You know, don't wait for it. Don't expect, here's the thing, don't expect an apology. Seriously, next time we're offended, don't expect one. Just forgive them. And I know this is what's going on in the living world, Bob. Just, and God bless you. And let's keep doing that. Let's keep our relationships going the way they are. Loving each other and serving one another and blessing each other and forgiving one another and bearing with one another and hanging out with one another and talking to one another and phoning one another and serving to one another. Look, these two can't stand each other, but they're serving together. That's what he said to me. Okay. But it's lovely. And, and here's the thing. That's what Jesus demonstrates. And so let's do that. So firstly, Jesus obeyed God's will at the highest personal cost. And secondly, technology, hey. So point D, in the last one, we'll try and finish this quickly, wrap this part of scripture up. God showed his acceptance by bestowing on Jesus the full rights of sonship. 8 to 11. Listen to this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I'll, I said I'll be brief, I'll try to be brief. So Jesus' humanity and subsequent death is presented here as the greatest act of worship. I don't know if you ever thought of worship going on within the Trinity. Every time Jesus obeyed his Father, he was effectively demonstrating worship to us. He obeyed him fully. It's the greatest act of worship when he came to the earth and died for our sins. And in response, God bestows, and the Father bestows on the Son, the greatest honour ever bestowed. And the, the, the honour he bestows on his Son is this. He, he bestows on him the full rights of sonship. So Jesus is God's Son. He's the heir of all of all that belongs to the Father. And the Father bestows on the Son at, the, at his coming of age, if you like, when he came to the earth, when he died for our sins, in response to that obedience. Look, therefore, it says, so th th that's connecting the previous passage, okay? He bestowed on him the full rights of his sonship. That's what's going on. This was all that belonged to Jesus. Through this act of obedience on the cross, God bestows on him or releases to him, as it were, 
the full rights of all that that belongs to him. Here's what Hebrews writes. In these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. He came into the fullness of that. His incarnation, his death on the cross, brought him into the fullness of what belongs to him. I'll try and go through the passage uh, in chunks. Okay, first of all, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. So this is a transference from the Father to the Son, inter-Trinitarian, something happening within the relationship, okay? He gave him the name that is above every name. Obviously, we know the name of God, Yahweh, okay? It's not so much that he transferred his name to Jesus, he transferred what goes with the name, uh, the prestige, the honour, the recognition he bestowed on Jesus. It's Jesus is why, I don't know if you noticed, and this is what I said a couple of weeks back, it's what distinguishes us from cults. What is the name we love to mention in this church? We love to sing, this is, this is almost a hymn, there's a name I love to sing, a name I can't even think of it, but what is the name that's on, on our lips? What is the name I've said over and over again this morning? What is the name we always use a focus on his primary in this church it's jesus thank you and his love it's jesus have you noticed and you should have noticed and you ought to notice it's not god it's not yahweh or even jehovah a, a translation of that it's not have you noticed we don't do that and, and that's something i something I, I communicated to other friends i think we do a sunday school here junior church our focus in this church is jesus because God has appointed him, God has presented him, has given us him. He said himself, he who does not honour the Son, does not honour the Father. You have no access to God the Father. Let me put this straight, if we don't know this. God is big, he's too big for us. We have no access to him. There's no way you can get near him. He is a terrifying awesome, holy, inapproachable, inaccessible being. He really is. I'm telling you what Scripture says, friends. The only way you have any access to him is through Jesus Christ. It's why he's the pinnacle of our worship. He connects us to God. He pleads for us on behalf, uh, pleads to God on behalf of us, of us, of us, for on us. He reconciles us. He dies for our sins. He connects us to God. It's His name that is above every name. When at the end, I'm going to get to it in a minute. Every knee will bow. They will bow to who? Jesus. If you ever remember, if you only ever remember one name, one word, don't you ever forget the name. Of Jesus. It is the sweetest name on earth. It's the name above every other name. It's the only name you need to remember. Jesus. 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 When you stand before God, and if there is such a place when we stand, and, and if he asks this ridiculous question, it's not true, really easy, but if he asks, why should I let you into my kingdom? The only name, the only word, the only sentence you have to put together is Jesus. Jesus. It's the name above every name. 
And he said, the name of Jesus, we've already touched on this everywhere. He said, the name of Jesus, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know, the hardest thing to, to, to accept as Christians is that men and women mock us, but worse, they mock our Jesus. Despise the thought of him, the teaching of him, the mention of his name. And they seem to get away with murder, don't they? You know, the way they mock Jesus. And here's, but here's what Scripture says, friends. Here's what Scripture says. There's coming a time, Paul reminds the church of Philippi, when every knee will bow before Jesus. Every knee. That's the God name that God has put forward. That's the person. Every person. There will not be a soul in our world, dead or alive, who will not finally bow before Jesus. Not only bow, but every tongue confess that he is the Messiah, the Lord. He is one with God. That's all that term means, Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is one with God. There will not be a soul who won't finally bow and acknowledge Jesus. Like the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. What is the first step of Christianity? What's the a priori step in my coming to faith is when I bow before Jesus and declare him to be my Lord and my God. That's, that's the quintessential mark of faith. Matthias explains what will happen at the end of the time. He says, a confession will be made for the first time in response to the visible manifestation of his glory. Will not be a saving confession. Here's what we have to understand, and this is why we do church. When every tongue confesses Jesus as Lord, it will not be a saving confession, but a grudging acknowledgement rested by overmastering divine power. It won't be voluntary. God will demand it from people. It will be almost an involuntary response to the awe of Jesus. When every tongue he says, but a grudging acknowledgement rested by overmastering divine power from lips as unbelieving as they were, through the whole earthly experience, there will be no conversion on that day. We don't wait to tell our loved ones about Jesus, our neighbours about Jesus, our community about Jesus, until the end, because on that day, there will be no saving confessions of Jesus. It'll be too late, because this will be a divinely... Uh, 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 brought out, insistent, commanded confession, there will be no salvation. All will submit, all will confess, but not all will be saved. Hey, I must confess, I must bow and confess Jesus as Lord today, now. My neighbour, my friend, my family, my... I don't have any colleagues, do I? <laughs> yeah, at least. Whoever they are. And the same for all of us. There is an urgency to gospel work. 
because when Jesus returns, there will be no saving confessions of his name. And lastly, all of this is for the glory of God the Father. It's important to understand that. This glorifies God. What makes God happy? You know, what, God, what glorifies him? What gives God the greatest joy? When is God worshipped in the highest way? When his son is recognised and worshipped. You don't make God jealous. You know, by using Jesus' name too much and not mentioning his name, we don't make him jealous. We glorify him. He gets off on that. It's what makes him happy. And the last thing, I need to close. The last thing I want to say to you, the, the carrot. There's a carrot. I love carrots. I don't know if you like carrots. I love carrots. We, me and the kids, we tried to plant some carrots yesterday. We bought some seeds, went into the garden, dug a couple of holes, and I thought, I better read the instructions. And it says in the back, you, you probably know better, better than me, to be planted in autumn stroke winter. <laughs> so we better keep those, okay? There's a carrot here. There's a carrot. The reason he, he, he's illustrating what church uh, um, unity looks like, he says Jesus, he shows us Jesus, he shows us his, his obedience, but what does he show us about Jesus at the end? That he is, that is, you can leave it up there, thanks, that, that, that Jesus is exalted, that Jesus is rewarded for his obedience. And one thing Paul wants the Philippi church to know, this is their carrot, he said, and guys, if you do this, God will honour you. God will see. And God will reward you. That's what he's saying. Because here's the thing, when somebody wrongs me, if Bron wrongs me, you know, she may not see that I've forgiven her in my heart. And that would be a hard thing. If she really, really wrongs me, you know, she may not see that. She may never know that. You may never know that. It may, it's a big costly thing for me to do that. And what Paul is saying, but God will know that. God will see that. And God will honour that. Can you see the point? That's the character. He's encouraging them. Like the Olympics. I was just going to just say, look, you know how it goes on in the Olympics. They compete for a prize. Let me say something to this to you. To desire a reward from God is not unspiritual. To desire God to recognise what you've done is not as unspiritual. To desire God saying, you know, thank you or well done is not unspiritual. Jesus encourages us to serve him for God to recognise us. So, hey, let me leave that with you. God knows what you do for this church. How much you work, how much you serve, how much you absorb and how you forgive and how you make sure relationships continue. He knows you do that. And he promises to recognize that. God bless you. Keep doing it. Let's keep working together, serving together. And who knows what God may yet do through our unified labor in his name. Remember, church unity makes us more fruitful and church unity safeguards us from our opponent.